All right, good morning, church. Good to see you all this morning. Good to hear your voices. If you would, turn to the book of John, John's Gospel, chapter 10. So if you'd follow along, I'm going to start by just reading us the end of John chapter 10, and then as we move through, we'll come back and read the other parts. So if you'd follow along, I'm going to read John 10, verse 27. Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice, I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. You learn a lot about a person when you find out what songs they want to sing when things get hard in their life. I remember when I was a part of my stepdad's funeral earlier this year, and I was talking to my mom and just saying, what, what were the songs that were most dear to Ed's heart? And she gave me the songs and I'm like, this makes total sense of the man's life. These are the truths he, he clung to all the way through his Christian life. You learn a lot about a person when you find out what they wanna sing when hardship comes. You know, the people of God in the Old Testament, they would sing their songs and they put their hymnal right in the middle of our Bible. It's called the Book of Psalms. And you listen in and you eavesdrop on the people of God singing and what are they saying? They're saying, God, Be a rock under our feet. Lift us out of the miry clay and set our feet on a rock. Secure our footsteps. They're praying for this. They're singing in the direction of these kinds of hopes. You've come from the Old Testament over into the New Testament. And the Apostle Paul says, here's what I want for believers. I want believers to be steadfast and immovable. Who doesn't want that for the Christian life? If you could pick two words, that's, Two really good ones. I would love to be steadfast and immovable. The million dollar question is, how do you get there? The million dollar question is, what truths from God make Christians immovable? What's the rock that God puts under the feet of believers and has for 2,000 years that make the church not move an inch when the gates of hell come barreling against us? These words from Jesus in John chapter 10 are truths that make stable Christians. They secure our footsteps in a a world like ours, a fallen world. So we're gonna review three truths of the gospel that make Christians immovable. Number one, Jesus takes care of me. Jesus takes care of me. That's what a shepherd does. He takes care of the sheep. He makes sure they eat. He makes sure they're safe. He runs off the wolves. He makes them lie down in green pastures. He leads them beside still waters. It's what shepherds do, and and Jesus is gonna loom large in that particular role. Follow along in verse one as we read our text. Jesus says, truly I tell you, anyone who doesn't enter the sheep pen by the gate but climbs in some other way is a thief and a robber. He's gonna address the thieves and robbers. They're standing right there. The one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens it for him and the sheep hear his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought all his own outside, he goes ahead of them. The sheep follow him because they know his voice. They will never follow a stranger. Instead, they will run away from him because they don't know the voice of strangers. Jesus gave them this figure of speech, but they did not understand what he was telling them. Jesus said again, now he's gonna, he's gonna change the metaphor. Truly I tell you, I'm the gate for the sheep. 
All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep didn't listen to them. I am the gate. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will come in and go out and find pasture. A thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come so that they may have life and have it in abundance. It's it's about Jesus, the shepherd. The background of our passage is conflict. Jesus has been having conflict with the religious leaders. It's Jesus versus the Jewish authorities. And he's been having conflict with them since chapter eight. In chapter eight, he says, I am the light of the world, and they had words. There was conflict immediately when he said that. Later on in chapter eight, he says, before Abraham was, I am, and they didn't just have words, they picked up stones. So there's conflict right behind our passage. You come into John chapter nine, Jesus heals a man who's born blind, and he heals him on the wrong day. Apparently, you're not supposed to heal people on the, on the Sabbath day. And Jesus heals him on the Sabbath, and he does it on purpose. He's meddling, and he heals him on the Sabbath, and it causes an issue. And they end up kicking, the, the religious authorities, the Jewish leaders, kick this man out of the temple, and Jesus finds him outside the temple, and here's what Jesus says. He reveals himself to this man, says this in John 9, I am the son of man. I came into this world that those who do not see will see, man born blind, those who do not see will see, and those who do see will become blind. And here again, this led to conflict because Jesus said this in the hearing of the Jewish authorities who are standing right there and they say, well, hold on. Don't think we missed the point. You think we're blind. And Jesus then flips them with their own weight and he says, no, actually, if you were blind, I could heal you like I healed this man, but because you think you see, your sin remains. So basically, Jesus is saying, you are. You're spiritually Blind, you can't see what's right in front of you. The son of man standing in front of you and you can't see who I am. You're blind. Led to conflict. Ignore the chapter break. So I've just brought you from chapter eight to chapter nine. Ignore the chapter break because everybody's still standing there. In chapter 10, all the same parties are standing right there. The guy dripping wet from the pool of Siloam, looking through his brand new eyes, he's standing right there. The religious leaders who have beef with Jesus, they're standing right there. And Jesus says to these religious leaders, he says, you aren't the gatekeepers who give people access to God or deny people access to God. He says, I'm the gate for the sheep now. Anybody who wants to come in to the presence of God enters through me. Anyone, he says, who enters by me, he will be saved. He will come in and go out and find pasture. And then he says in verse 10, you see, a thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come so they may have life and have it in Abundance. Jesus is clearly referring to them as the robbers and thieves. So he's got this metaphor that he's running with and he's cast them in these different roles. There is a good shepherd, there are thieves and robbers, and there are sheep. And he's cast them, the religious authorities, in the role of thieves and robbers, right? These are fighting words. That's why I say he is meddling all over this passage. Jesus is gonna say, basically, you think you kicked him out of the temple, chapter nine, verse 34, but chapter 10, verse four, I brought the sheep out. I'm bringing them, this is, in other words, Jesus is giving the clear impression. I'm leading a new exodus. There's a new Moses. He's leading people out of bondage and into life and freedom, and I'm the new Moses. I'm bringing all my sheep out, out of this place of darkness and death and stealing and destroying and into a place of life and abundance. You see how he's talking about himself in verse three. Look at it, verse three and four. He, referring to the good shepherd who comes, he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. There's the exodus. When he has brought 
all his own outside, he goes ahead of them. There's this picture, Jesus referring to himself as the sheep who's leading, who's a shepherd who's leading the sheep out. He's taking care of all their needs. You know, one of the, one of the most profound pictures of helplessness in the Bible is, is a sheep without a shepherd. A sheep without a shepherd. It's a biblical picture of helplessness. Mark chapter nine, verse 36, you see this. It says, Jesus healed many people. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them, quote, because they were helpless like sheep without a shepherd. You just picture that, right? So you might not have grown up around sheep. I certainly didn't. In New Orleans, I never saw a sheep. Even at our zoo, I don't think we had any sheep, right? So if you didn't grow up around sheep, we might not know some things, but sheep are not the most awesome, intelligent, uh, athletic animals, they pretty much have nothing going for them. They don't have horns. That's why there's no college that has as its mascot a sheep. Um, you know, they don't have anything. I heard one Christian thinker say years ago, he said, one of the greatest proofs against Darwinian view of natural selection is a sheep. Right? They, they don't have a chance even after so-called so billions of years. They still don't have a prayer in this world because they've got no weaponry or intelligence. It's kind of a, it's a double whammy. And Jesus says, they're like sheep without a shepherd. They need a shepherd. And what gives an edge to the words of Jesus in John chapter 10 is these religious leaders were considered the spiritual shepherds of Israel but they were destroying the sheep rather than feeding the sheep. And there was this kind of dark period in Old Testament history where God spoke through many prophets and he spoke through a prophet named Ezekiel and the people he calls on the carpet through the prophet Ezekiel are the shepherds. He said, tell the shepherds to come here for a second. I've got a few words for them. And they're very, very edgy words. He publicly confronts the false shepherds. Here's his words. The word of the Lord came to me, Ezekiel says, these words, son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say, you have not, now here's the job description of a shepherd. You've not strengthened the weak, healed the sick, bandaged the injured, brought back the strays, or sought the lost. Instead, you have ruled them with violence and cruelty. So what happens? If you keep on reading, here's the next point in your notes if you're taking notes is there's this promise in Ezekiel 34 that God promises to do what Israel's shepherds did not do. You haven't done these things, and God goes on to say, I'm gonna come personally and do them myself. Here's what Ezekiel 34 went on to say. I'll search for my flock. I'll rescue them from all the places where they've been scattered on a day of clouds and darkness. I'll bring them out from the peoples and gather them. I will tend my flock and let them lie down. This is the declaration of the Lord. What you see, don't miss it, in John 10 is God doing what the spiritual shepherds of Israel were not doing. Jesus says, I'm the shepherd, I'm finally here. You don't need these clowns. They're not the way to life anymore. I'm the way to life. They've been stealing, killing, and destroying. It ends now. It's, it's Jesus standing tall, and he puts himself between the wolves and the sheep. He stands right in front of his sheep, and he says, a new beginning happens. John 10. He's the fulfillment of Ezekiel 34. Jesus comes into John 10, and he is fed up. 
He's fed up with religious leaders who built a brand by afflicting broken people. The man born blind, again, from John chapter nine, he's standing right there. He's looking through his brand new eyes. He's just been browbeaten by these religious leaders. You wanna go back and look at the way that they dressed him down in John chapter nine. You can go back and look later on. They, they beat him verbally and kicked him out of the temple. One early church father who was preaching this text, I think it was Chrysostom, and he said, they, they kicked the man out of the temple and the Lord of the temple found him. That's the picture. Jesus comes and chases this guy down. Don't miss the difference, friends, this morning between Jesus and religion. Jesus calls these religious leaders thieves and robbers. He's talking about them. In their hearing, he's saying, you snuck into the gate and then you styled yourselves the gatekeepers. And that's not the way it is. He says, you came to steal and kill and destroy. I've come that these people might have life and have it in abundance. Contemplate this with me this morning. If only the world knew what the real Jesus offers. If only the world knew what the real Jesus offers. Heavy-handed religion drives true sheep out where Jesus would bring them closer. That's what Jesus is doing. He's standing here saying, it ends today. You ever had somebody who fought for you when you were helpless? Ever had somebody who advocated for you when you didn't have a voice, when you were powerless and somebody stood up for you? That's what Jesus is doing in John chapter 10. He, he says, basically, he's standing between these religious, abusive religious leaders and the flock of God. And he says, everybody who wants to have life, you need to come with me. You don't need this anymore. He was driven out of the temple. You're not gonna need the temple. The temple's about to become obsolete. The temple will be torn down and three days later, I'll rise it up. And he was referring to the temple of his own body. He's saying, I'm the temple. Everybody's gonna meet with God in me now. Jesus is the shepherd and what do shepherds do? Psalm 23, he makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. He walks with us through the valley of the shadow of death and he calms our fears all the way through, right? Who, who doesn't want a God like that? Jesus is getting a bad rap in America these days. Cynicism is trying to control the narrative. And look, I get it. I'm, I am empathetic towards some of the cynical remarks that are made about Christianity because some of the marks that are made cynically about Christianity, some of those accusations aren't groundless. That's the really sad part. Christian leaders and churches mishandling people in the name of Jesus. But, but listen, for all those cynical claims against this or that leader or this or that church, here's the truth. Jesus has never failed anyone, and he never will. He's solid. He's trustworthy. You can bank on him. He never breaks his promises. He never breaks his word. He never mistreats people. He doesn't break a bruised reed. He has an ability to restore what's almost dead. He's tender. Maybe you're at a point of deciding whether you're gonna follow Jesus or not. Maybe you're at a point of deciding whether you're gonna keep following Jesus or not. And I wanna say this to you this morning with full conviction. If you throw your life into the hands of Jesus Christ, he will be faithful today and again tomorrow 
and the day after that, and the day after that, until you breathe your last breath, he will be faithful. Other people will fail you. People you want to lean on, people who have good intentions will fail you. Jesus will never fail you. Rock saw, that's a rock underneath your feet. That's what makes Christians immovable. That's what makes Christians steadfast. He's going to be there on days when joy is surging in your life, when blessing is coming into your life. But you know what? He's going to be there on the other days as well. The hard days, he's going to lead you through deep waters. He's going to walk you through to the other side. And there on that day, mark it, you're going to praise him because he was faithful. That's how the story's gonna go down because it, it fulfills the promise of Jesus. You're going to stand either on the other side of your trial and your suffering and your affliction or in the glorious presence of God himself. You're gonna stand and the reason you're gonna stand is because he's gonna make you stand. The reason you're gonna get home is because the shepherd's gonna get you home. This gospel makes Christians immovable. Where are you gonna put your confidence if it's not here? That's what the old hymn said. When all around my soul gives way, he then is all my hope and stay. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground. You believe that? All other ground is sinking sand. Second truth. Jesus takes care of me, number one. Jesus died for me. Number two, Jesus died for me. Look at verse 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep, for the sheep. Skip to verse 14. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me just as the father knows me and I know the father. I lay down my life for the sheep, but I have other sheep that are not from the sheep pen. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. Then there will be one flock, one shepherd. This is why the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own. I have the right to lay it down, and I have the right to take it up again. I have received this command from my Father. Jesus died for me. It's a pillar of the Christian gospel. Jesus says it three times in seven verses. Verse 11, or rather verse 17, I lay down my life. Verse 15, I lay down my life for the sheep. Verse 11, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. It's a reference, the laying down of his life is a reference to the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ on the cross. There's glorious gospel packed into one word in the original Hebrew, uh, rather Greek language, and it's the Greek word huper, and it's translated for. In other contexts, it's sometimes translated in behalf of. So when he says, I lay down my life, huper the sheep, I lay down my life for, in behalf of the sheep, in the stead of the sheep. It's a, it's a word that theologians have talked about for centuries called substitutionary atonement. It's a $3 word, but it's worth knowing. It means Jesus Christ bore the death that you should have borne. He bore the wrath that you should have borne. He paid the debt you should have paid. He did it in behalf of his people. Isaiah 53 talks about this idea of substitutionary atonement. All we like sheep had gone astray, and the Lord laid on them their own iniquity? No. That would have been just. 
for the Lord to lay on them their rebellion for straying against, away against God. But here's what the text says. All we like sheep had gone astray, but the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's what Martin Luther and the reformers were called, the great exchange. Jesus walks with our sin to the cross, hangs there in our place. We walk from the cross with his righteousness, wearing a robe of righteousness that will never wear out. That's the great exchange. He takes our sin, we take his righteousness by faith alone. This is good news. This is why we call it a gospel. What's it mean? We failed so deeply, he had to die for us. Do we understand what we deserve? What our sins deserve? We're not entitled to forgiveness. We're not entitled to mercy. If we're talking about entitlement, we're in the justice world. Justice world's not a happy place for sinful people. We don't want what justice offers. We don't want what we deserve. I began studying the uh, doctrine of the atonement in college and it just turned so many lights on for me. I started reading great books and theological resources about this doctrine and it took me back into God's word to study it for myself. I applied to... Uh, Nickel State University to finish my degree and I was auditioning for a music scholarship and meanwhile I'm just drinking in all these atonement truths and I would, I would buy these sermon series. This is back when there were cassette tapes. I should probably stop and explain what that is. It's kind of a square, got a little thing of wheels in the middle. Anyway, I would listen to these cassette tapes about the atonement. I would just sit there and just listen and just cry for joy. And right in that same series, uh, same episode of my life, I'm auditioning for a music scholarship at Nichols State University, and I didn't think that the audition went very well. Because I'd never auditioned in an environment like that, where they'd stop you in the middle of your song and just say, hey, that, that's enough. Uh, we've heard everything we need to hear. And so I wasn't ready for that to happen. So I'm like, I'm singing this song about the cross. And while I'm singing it, I'm... Uh, on the verge of tears. It's not actually affecting my voice yet, but I'm, I'm almost there. And I'm singing through the chorus of this song. It just says, it was my sin that nailed him there. It was my cross he had to bear. I'm building up to my favorite part of the song, the bridge, which also shows your tenor range. So I was about to get to the biggest part of the whole song and I'm singing it there and they broke in and said, right before I got to the bridge, they broke in and said, that'll, that'll be enough. Thank you for your audition. And I'm like, you missed the best part. <laughs> The bridge just has this string of statements of what Jesus has done for us. Like, for whatever audition's next, just give me five more minutes. Just, just give me, some, I didn't actually say that out loud. I wasn't bold enough. But that's what I wanted to say because all this stuff was so new. It was just firing in my heart. I was, if you would just listen, all of you would just want to believe how good this good news is. And the reason I was so lit up by this truth is I was realizing in a day in my life where I needed to realize it more and more, it's this truth. That God's love for you is not based on your performance, but on Christ's performance in your place. Man, I needed that in the late 1990s when the weight of guilt and shame was crushing down on me and I did not have a clear category for the doctrine of assurance and then it came singing out of the text of scripture out of John 10 and I was like this jury you all need I don't know what you were here for but you need to believe <laughs> some of you you're going to struggle with assurance you might be thinking hey I'm already there I, I've 
I'm walking through that right now. Some of you, you're going to struggle with assurance. You don't see it. It's gonna come like the 82nd Airborne and it's gonna come almost out of nowhere. Next thing you know, you're gonna wonder, am I really in Christ or not? Does he hold on to people like me or not? And the enemy's gonna pull up at an opportune time because he knows when those times are. At an opportune time, the enemy is gonna accuse you and he's gonna come up and say, listen, you're a train wreck. And here's the hardest part. It's gonna be the truth. It's gonna be the absolute truth. And he's gonna have exhibit A, exhibit B, evidence to show what an absolute train wreck your life is right now. And here's the good news. God commended his love toward us, Romans 5 says, in that while we were still train wrecks, <laughs> Christ died for us. Sinners, Christ died for us. Charles Spurgeon famously said, when the enemy tells you you are a sinner, tell him I know, and Christ died for sinners. We have an answer to the accuser of the brethren, and it's a powerful answer. It silences the accuser. Look, this makes Christians steadfast. This makes Christians immovable. Hymn writer Eliza Hewitt, she knew what it was like to battle for assurance, the sense of, am I loved by God or am I not loved by God because my performance sure isn't looking great this week. And she wrote a hymn to fend off the accuser and then she handed it to the church. And it begins with these words. She said, my faith has found a resting place. Not in device nor creed, I trust the ever-living one, his wounds for me shall plead. I need no other argument, I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. That truth will hold on to Christians. When your grip breaks, that truth will grip you back. We, we failed so deeply he had to die he loved us so deeply, he was glad to die. He was glad to die for us. <laughs> no one takes my life, he says in verse 18. No one takes my life from me. I'm doing this on purpose. Not caught on the wheel of fatalism. I lay it down on my own. Hebrews 12 says that Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame. He was glad to die for you. One of my favorite professors of preaching Mike Bullmore, whose instruction in classes I took from a distance for years and have adopted his method of preparation for teaching God's word. Bullmore taught preaching and teaching at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School for 15 years. And he, he tells a story, I heard him tell it years ago, and he says, there's a story about when I was a kid, he said I was probably five years old, and the kids ministry leader at the end of class said, Mikey, come over here. And he said, so I walked over and she said, I want you to remember something for your whole life. So I'm gonna close these five words in your hand. And he said, she opened my little hand and with every word she spoke, she, put, she closed a finger and folded it down. And she said, Christ died for our sins. And she said, never let that go. And he told that room that I was in 15 years ago or more, he said, it's been 50 years since she said that and my hand is still closed. I'm holding on for dear life to this message. 
This is where a Christian stands or we start falling tomorrow. Are your fingers closed over the one truth that'll get you home? Christ died for our sins. Are you convinced in a fresh way that that is true for all who repent and believe? Oh, believe it this morning. Turn from sin, trust in Christ, close your fist over the truth that saves. Jesus takes care of me. Jesus died for me. And third, Jesus will never let me go. Hear him say it. Again, verse 27. My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. What makes Christians immovable? Knowing this, this is what makes Christians immovable. The sins that sometimes overpower me don't break the grip of Christ over my life. Cancer can't break the grip of Christ over my life. As we sing often, no power of hell no scheme of men. That's pretty all-inclusive. Everything hell's got, everything this fallen world's got can ever pluck me from his hand. <laughs> That's awesome. That is such amazing news. The Christian's confidence is in a sovereign, saving God. My favorite thing about John chapter 10 is how no nonsense, how Take no prisoners, Jesus is. The authority in his voice. He's not asking questions, he's making proclamations about what he's gonna do for all his sheep. He's going to do this, this will happen. Jesus has a shepherd voice in John 10 and when he uses it, his sheep come running. My, uh, my mom is an elegant woman. She's, she's not... Um, loud. Her sister, my Aunt Becky, is loud. My mom is not as loud, and uh, I rarely heard my mom raise, raise her voice when I was a kid. Actually, if she lowered her voice, you were in trouble. Uh, that's when it's like, oh goodness, it's not going to be good. She didn't have to raise her voice. She didn't do that very often, but, th but like every other mom, she has a mom voice, right? It's like there's this level she can kick into. It's a mom voice level, and when she dug that deep, you could hear her across town. You know, it, when my brother and I, we didn't have cell phones, right, as kids, and we'd be playing at Ryan Hennessy's house, it's two doors down across the street on the right, and uh, we'd be playing at Ryan's house. All mom had to do was just walk outside the front door of our house on Elmwood Parkway and just yell one word, boys. And she yelled it, and we came from wherever we were. We could have, you know... In one sense, she yelled it with such authority, you would have thought all the boys in our neighborhood were all coming to dinner tonight. It was a powerful thing, right? She, she, she used her mom voice. Jesus has a shepherd voice in John chapter 10, and when he uses it, the sheep come running. Look at verse 16. I have sheep that are not from this sheep pen. They're over the other hills, the distant hills. They're not in this sheep pen. I must bring them also, and notice the words, they will listen to my voice. Then there will be one flock, one shepherd. 
That's why I'm saying Jesus uses this kind of authoritative language. He doesn't say there might be one flock. He doesn't say, I hope someday there's a flock or there's a shepherd. He doesn't say in verse 16, I fully intend to bring other sheep into the fold. We'll see if they come or not. No, he's saying, I'm gonna call and they're going to come because I'm gonna use a shepherd voice and they will listen and they're gonna come running. Jesus is large and in charge in John chapter 10 and you gotta love it. Verse 27, my sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. He's huge in John chapter 10 because he's calling it all in advance. The sheep are mine. They're not yours. They never were yours. I love them. I've come for them. I'm going to die for them. And you can bet I'm going to bring them all home when this thing is over. I'm not going to lose any of them. John 6 would say that in John chapter 6. Of all that the Father has given to me, I'm not going to lose a single one of them. John 10 doesn't show us a savior who hopes, but a savior who saves. He pays your debts, he calls your name, he gives you life, he keeps you safe, he brings you home. This is your, John 10 is your comprehensive, stem to stern salvation. It's your author and finisher of your faith. It is rock beneath your feet, it is the church's anthem, it is the Christian's boast. It's the core truth of the gospel. Jesus wants to make us steadfast. He wants to make us immovable, confidently living for him. So what truths does he fold into the hands of the church? Jesus will take care of me. Jesus died for me. Jesus will never let me go. What does it look like for us as a church to be strong and immovable, closing our hand around these truths together? Four things. Number one, trust God's promises today. If you have never put your trust and faith in Jesus Christ, it's time. Believe. Let go of your idols. Let go of your sin and put your trust in the one hope of the world, Jesus Christ. There's life in him. There's death everywhere else. Believe it. You struggle with sin? Trust him. Afflicted by trials? Trust him. He's a thousand ways to prove himself faithful. You haven't seen the last one yet. He will prove himself faithful again this week, next week, this year, next year. Two, help those who doubt. Bible's not afraid of your doubts. God's not afraid of your doubts. People all over inside the Bible, people doubt. Abraham, the father of the faith. Sarah, laughed at the promise of God. Peter, John the Baptist, I mean, all over the place, people struggle with doubt. There's doubt all over the Bible. Let's help those who doubt. Church, are we, are we good at helping doubting people, not piling on, not pouncing on people with doubts, helping them come alongside those who doubt? The job of the accuser of the brethren is taken. The job of those who will encourage the brethren and fight alongside the brethren, that job is open. It's the call of the church to help those who doubt. Third, fold this gospel into the hands of our children. You look at the children that God has blessed us with in our church, whether it's in this room or down these halls. God has blessed our church with children. Parents, you look at them. Grandparents, you look at them. Those of you who don't have children, but you look at the next generation, 
that's coming behind us and you look at them, if they become successful in the eyes of the world but die without faith in Jesus, that is the greatest tragedy imaginable. So keep the main thing the main thing. They're not gonna hear every word we say. So why don't we just say this? Hold on to five. Can you hold on to five? Christ died for our sins. Son, baby girl, you hold on to this, it'll get you home. You hold on to this, it'll hold on to you. Believe this gospel. Let's pray that the Spirit of God will make our children immovable in the faith. And fourth, make this gospel known. As a church, we're called. We recite the Great Commission on a regular basis so it's ringing in our ears on our way out of this gathering that there's a world that's lost. Neighbors, coworkers, friends, family who don't have the message of hope and have not yet repented and believed and embraced it, they need to hear it. They need to see it evidenced in your life. The world needs to hear it. There are parts of the world, we talk about this all the time, unreached parts of the world where they haven't heard the name of Jesus. The hope that we've been singing about, praying about, preaching about this morning, they've never heard that hope. That's why we send, we commission, we, we give in that direction. Global offering, right? We're about to tell stories all through the month of December about the importance of getting this gospel to the ends of the earth. Why? Because when judgment comes on that final day, no one will be able to stand unless they're standing here on this message, this Christ. Everything will crumble except if you're standing on him. Doesn't that add a note of urgency to the gospel message we proclaim? And shouldn't that add a song of joy because we are the ones who have been saved and we've tasted the grace of God. Oh, let's treasure it together.